Hebrews, the New and Living Way. This is part 17. The text is Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's the title that I just took from the verse because I couldn't come up with a better one and it seemed that one is inspired of the Spirit, so let's use it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Let us therefore, and this is the strange word, strive to enter that rest. And so I think the writer means for us to see the, the juxtaposition of those two ideas, striving and resting. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Same sort. I want to talk about that of disobedience. Not just disobedience, there's a particular kind. Typically, these are verses that we just quote as self standing without taking them in their context. And so there are verses 12 and 13 about, about the Bible and the nature of its inspiration and working and effect. But if you take them in context, they come right on the heels of this, let's, let's make sure we don't fail to enter that rest. Let's not commit the same sort of disobedience that that generation at Kadesh, about to enter the promised land, and then they didn't because they believed the report of the ten negative spies rather than Joshua and Caleb. And so God judged them, not, en- not letting them enter the land. 60,000 people died in the wilderness until a whole generation under the wrath of God just perished. And their children could go into the promised land. So, so the writer of Hebrews says, Let, let's, not, let's not fail to enter into our rest Let's not commit the same kind of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's just pray. Come Holy Spirit and just awaken our hearts to the truth of your word. To see things that perhaps we haven't given attention to before to be reminded of things that we know but don't live under the application of many hours of the week. And so we need that grace that the choir was singing about. We needed a lot more than just to be saved. We needed in which to stand. And we need it from your hand, especially at times like this when there is a spiritual work you want to do in our hearts. 
We stand at the door and knock and we open. We open our lives to your word and to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Striving and resting, they seem to be opposites. One implies effort. The other seems to imply some kind of ceasing of effort. The rest that is mentioned, we know from the context and previous studies, that is, is trusting in divine grace as it has been finally revealed in Christ, God the Son, and his finished atoning work on the cross. So the resting is a, a ceasing from merit-based earned standing before God. All the references in the Old Covenant to the Sabbath. We looked at this last week. That's online if you'd like. All those Old Covenant references to the Sabbath are a picture of this great final resting in the finished work of redemption. Just, just as the original resting at the close of the original work of creation, it was a resting in the finished creation. So it points to a resting in the finished work of redemption in Jesus Christ. All the law and the prophets, Hebrews 1, 1, 2, 3, they were all looking forward to that conclusion, that completion. Our text, uh, perhaps to the surprise of a lot of people, it indicates that resting in Christ's grace, his gracious atoning work, Resting is not the same as relaxing in Christ's finished work. No. There's, there's a striving that's demanded in that 11th verse. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strange. And there's nothing in the exhortation of this text to indicate that this striving is somehow... Contrary to grace, it seems to fit in with grace. There's no hint of legalism here. There's no resorting to some kind of works theology. No, nothing of the kind. So, so what we have here is a divinely inspired new covenant, Holy Spirit inspired call to strive to enter the rest of grace. And I'm saying to you this morning, we, you have to do something with that. Because it's right there. It's right there. Our call to enter into promised, new covenant, redemptive rest, it's rooted in a comparison with God's call to Israel at Kadesh to enter into the promised land rest. They're compared. That's made very clear if you just bump back just a wee bit into the text, say to Hebrews 3.16. If you read Hebrews 3.16 to 4.1, you pick up the flow of the argument that we're looking at today. For who were those? He said, this is what he's doing. Who are we talking about here? He doesn't want any misunderstanding. 
Who were those who heard yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? That was all grace. They couldn't get out. Left Egypt, led by Moses. And with whom? Same. Who are we talking about here? With whom was he, this is God, provoked for 40 years? Well, I'm going to tell you who we're talking about. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom, he's still doing this, who are we talking about here? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they, now we know who they are, right? He's given us three clues. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, so that sets it up. 4.1. Therefore, so he's not changing subjects here. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, who's that? Well, that's us. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. But, but, but why didn't they all enter the land at God's command at Kadesh? Why didn't they? Well, we know. We know the answer to that question. They refused to enter the promised land because God hadn't cleared out all the enemies presently residing in that land before he told them to go in. In other words, here's why they didn't go in even though God commanded and promised. Here's why they rebelled. When they were told to enter the land, it was still full of potential enemies. That was the problem. It was full of resistance. It was full of their resistance to taking possession of it. In other words, when God said, go in... They said no because it was a land out of which opposition had to be driven. Do you see it? They would have to strive to enter God's promised land rest. The land was theirs by divine grace. They were delivered from Egypt by divine grace. They were given the promised land by divine grace. They didn't buy the land. The gift of the land was as much of grace as their deliverance from Egypt was of grace. In fact, they left Egypt to get to the land. That was the goal. And now God promised to drive out the present inhabitants from this land but not until they went in. And they resisted entering the land because there was opposition in the land. Read the account. The ten spies. There's giants in the land. There's chariots in the land. There's fortified cities in the land. We were like grasshoppers, they said, compared to the people in the land. Enter the land? Are you nuts? We're not entering the land. Look at what's in the land. There's nothing but trouble in the land. Opposition. 
That's what was waiting for them in their promised land rest. Now, all of this is in our writer's mind in Hebrews as he, as he pours out his heart to this New Testament church. Note, note the words of that 11th verse very, very carefully. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same sort. Not just disobedience, but the same sort of disobedience. Don't, don't miss divine rest the same way they missed divine rest. Don't, don't make the same sort of mistake. Don't commit the same sort of disobedience. And the mistake they made was they didn't take the command and promise of God seriously enough to go in and push out all the opposition. That was the mistake they made. And the writer to the Christian church is saying, don't you make the same mistake. Don't you make the same mistake. Strive to enter that rest. And our text in Hebrews makes application of that Old Testament story in a way that's pretty easy to see. We all know. We all know that not everyone finds the promise of the gospel attractive. Am I right? We all know not everyone finds the message of the New Testament compelling. How many of you know someone who made a start in the Christian walk and from all outward appearances at least doesn't look like they followed through? How many know someone like that? Let me see your hand. Look around the room. There's a whack of people. Everyone knows some people quit the faith with nothing but a bad taste in their mouth. Church is full of hypocrites. Doesn't work. I tried to change and I couldn't change. Everybody knows that. They laughed at me in my university class. Nothing surprising there. The reason is, and this is what I want to drill down into here. The reason is found in this text. This text has the reason. There's opposition to life in Christ. And not everyone strives against it. There is opposition to life in Christ. And not everyone strives against it. This is what I want to think through now. Don't panic. It's a long introduction. Point number one. I want to show you examples now of that principle. The, okay, just so you know, the principle we're going to be uh, unfolding in the rest of the sermon is this. There's opposition to life in Christ. You have to strive. Not everyone wants to. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at now, different examples. Point number one. Striving is necessary because 
The call of Christ in this world is strikingly countercultural, and many can't strive against the weight of that. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus is the speaker. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those that enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is, say it with me. I thought it was, I thought it was grace. It is. You strive to enter into that grace. The way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. They're quotable, aren't they? These words from Jesus. But they contain more than many think. Of course, of course. They tell us one path is easy, one path is hard. They tell us the easy gate is wide, the narrow gate is narrow. Okay, nothing new there. It's true, but we all, we know that. But, but embedded right in the words is also the reason the hard gate is hard and the reason the easy gate is easy. We're told in the text... What makes the hard gate hard and the easy gate easy? Here it is. The gate that leads to life is hard precisely because most people don't take it. In other words, those taking the narrow gate leading to life will always face the brunt of an entire culture committed to the opposite direction. It's not rocket science. There's piles of people taking the other path. How many are taking the path to the kingdom? Few. This means the narrow gate takes great courage because, because you're constantly having to call yourself back to convictions not shared by the community through which your path is cut. Everybody get that? You're constantly at work, college, university, school. You're constantly called back to convictions that aren't shared by the community, the many through whom your path slices. And it's always easier for the majority to make the convictions of the minority feel unreasonable. Correct? Always. This is like that in every area of life. No less true here. Jesus is the speaker. Jesus says so. The minority 
has to, has to, the few, the minority, has to constantly reinforce its own identity, its own authenticity, because it's not going to get reaffirmation by everybody else. It's going to get ridicule from everybody else. It's going to be told it's wrong by everybody else. It's going to be told it's intolerant by everybody else. Of any generation to follow Christ, this one should know that better than any. It's like walking a crowded sidewalk on Fifth Avenue in New York City at rush hour. Rini and I are going to New York for a few days for a little holiday. Let me show you what it's like walking. Let me act it out for you. This is walking Fifth Avenue, New York City, rush hour. And here is what you cannot do when you're walking there. So we're going this way. Here's what you can't do. New York rush hour. Here's what you can't do. Oh, I forgot. You can't do that. If you do that, they just walk over you. It's easy to walk with the crowd. This is the Bible. So true. It's easy to walk with the crowd. It's another story entirely to walk against the crowd. If you want to reach your destination going against the crowd, you have to strive. You're not going to get there without striving. Oh, how we need to instruct people engaging in the very first steps, right at the entry point of kingdom commitment, that there is going to come instant and persistent opposition. How we need to tell people they must never evaluate the reality of Christian hope and truth by the way the culture around them rejects it. Yes, grace is sweet. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Yes, grace is powerfully converting. Yes, there is hope eternal. Yes, there is freedom from condemnation. But also, yes, there will come immediate and increasing rejection and persecution and opposition. And if anyone is going to enter, he or she will have to, in the words of our text, strive to enter that rest. You're following Jesus? Suck it up. It's the only way you can do it. Jesus readdresses the same subject. It was big with Jesus. Striving against cultural rejection over and over again. Here's just another example. I won't won't wear you out with passage after passage. But here's another example. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is Mark's equivalent to the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. The same general summary. And when they bring you to trial, wait a minute. You're going to have to go and preach the gospel to all nations. Praise God. Let's go. Oh, and when they bring you to trial, what? And deliver you over, 
Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. See that? Who's this? Yes, it's you. Will be, say that one. By how many? Why? It's not because you keep the Sermon on the Mount or think you should love your enemies or do unto others as you would have them do unto you or believe in God. Not a problem. It's this. Jesus. But the one who endures to the end. So endurance is just another form of striving. How long do we have to do that? Well, to the end. Okay, I have to, I have to move on. Point number two. Striving is necessary because the call to follow Christ in this world works in the opposite direction of many of our natural instincts. And we must strive to take up our cross. Now, this is different from persecution that we were just talking about. This striving is, is, is inward. It's, it's with ourselves. There are, there are precepts to the gospel that, that call us to walk in ways that are foreign to my deeply embedded affections. Jesus recognized this conflict, this inward conflict with his would-be followers. I didn't put it on a slide because it's just a bit too long. Matthew 19, if you want to read it, 16 to 23. It's really a fascinating account. Matthew 19, 16 to 23. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay. Works. What, what good deed? How, how good do I have to be? What do I have to do to have eternal life? And he said to him, that's Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is, what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Which commandment? Well, Ten Commandments. That's what he's talking about here. Keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus is taking this guy somewhere. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. He's just citing a bunch of the commandments. And the young man said to him, done all those. What, what, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you'd be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad. Because he had a lot of money. 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with, only with difficulty, only with striving, 
will a rich person start at that wall, go right around. Don't you dare think of someone who has more money than you. This is us. Okay? Globally, this is an enormously wealthy crowd. Only with striving will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to look at this account carefully. Please notice what's happening. This good man is perfectly happy to hear Jesus recite from the commandments of righteous law-keeping. He loves to hear Jesus call him to obedience because he's obeying. And so as Jesus goes through these commandments, this man's pride is being buffed up. He's glowing. Yeah, yeah. Got them all. He's a devoutly religious Jew. But, but the call to give away his money, Jesus didn't say this to everybody. Why, why did he say it to this man? What, what's he drilling at here? The call to give away his money, it isn't one of the commandments, at least not directly. So, so Jesus is, isn't confronting this man's orthodoxy. He's confronting his self-centeredness. It's not just the commandments. That's not where the striving lies. He's dealing with this man's nature. He's dealing with this man's material reflexes. And while this man isn't afraid to strive to keep the commandments, he isn't willing to strive against his loves. He never closes with Jesus. It's too hard a fight. Too hard to strive. It's too hard. And he walks away sad. He, happy and sad. He walks away with all of his finances intact. All his investments, all of his properties. It's all intact. But, but he walks away sad because he knows, he knows that Jesus was dealing with, with a depth of cross-carrying that he wasn't willing to submit to. And he knows he's lost something. I've only brushed through two examples. Two examples of things we must all strive against as we press into the rest of grace in Christ Jesus. These are the types of resident enemies in the promised land that have to be pushed out. Okay? But there are others. I mean, Jesus addressed the battle with, with the basic fact of just our human weakness. The weakness of the flesh. He talked about that in uh, Matthew 26. Came to his disciples, found them sleeping, said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is it's weak. It's weak. This is not a sinful weakness. It's human fatigue. We're finite creatures. Physical bodies. And there are times... Following Jesus calls each of us to strive against it. You had a busy week. Who on earth has to go back to church Sunday night? Well, strive. I got to get up early in the morning. Tired. 
And Jesus calls each of us to strive against our own physical weaknesses. Laziness, distraction. It's not easy, is it? Expending exorbitant amounts of energy in kingdom pursuit. All of these, all of these are what our writer is referring to in that first verse of today's text. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, point number three. We need to hear the command to continually strive because it's easy for all of us to secure ourselves in certain sins. And that's where these words in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Now we see them in the context. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It is the nature of the beginning of inward sins that their presence is almost always hidden from us. Sin begins in the inward life the way ants begin their presence in your kitchen. You really don't see the first one. In 1668, John Owen wrote these words as he commented on these verses from Hebrews chapter 4. It's old, old English, but boy, is it good. Herein consists no small part of the deceitfulness of sin, that it confounds and hides things in the soul, that the soul is not able to make a right judgment about itself. It is very apt to become secure in an ill condition. We are apt to take a very light measure of our failings and so esteem this or that folly, neglect, or decay to consider it having no great guilt attending it. That's, that's a wonderful paragraph. This is why, immediately on the heels, you see, it all fits. Our writer's discussion of striving to enter gospel grace. Right there, he reminds us of this living revelation that can penetrate the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So, so we need God's word to push us beyond just a surface evaluation of our lives. Here I am standing up here in front of you. The outward appearance of my life, the way it looks to you people right now, isn't the issue of my life before God. And unless I'm very careful, I can think that this counts 
more than this. The part of my life he looks into is the part you don't see. And, according to our text, and more importantly, the part he looks into, it might even be the part I hide from myself, brush around, don't think about that much, turn the volume down. This is, this is the particular danger of inward sins. We, we forget the way sins that grow in our own natures, they affect the way our own nature can identify them as sinful. Did that make sense to you? Sins that grow in our own natures affect the way our natures can look at them as sinful. That's such an important point. We need God's word so desperately. Sin affects the way I think. And sins that affect the way I think affect the way I think about sin. And I don't see it. Like everybody else. We have examples of this in our Bibles, and this is how I'm wrapping up. Remember what we're looking at now. We need the word that penetrates, cuts into, because it is the nature of sin, inward sin that gets in our natures, that affects our thinking. It is in the nature of that kind of sin that we don't see things as sinful anymore. All right? Now I want to say, does that show up in the scriptures anywhere with God's people? So that's how we're wrapping up. Text number one. Revelation 2, 3, and 5. You still with me? Okay. Christ's words to the church in Ephesus. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. and You have not grown weary. That's good. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. And this... this uh, does this sound like Jesus to you? Is this the Jesus you know? If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there are things this church did well. And because there are things this church did well, that caused them to miss their inward spiritual decline. They, they, they didn't... What? They didn't know. Remember... Jesus says. You're not noticing what's happening in your own heart. So that's an example of what we're looking at. Text number two. Revelation 3, 1 to 3. These are Christ's words to the church at Sardis. We should be interested in this because this is Jesus, and this is Jesus as he looks at the church. We love Jesus, and we're a church. This should concern us. Christ's words to the church at Sardis. 
to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. You're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Same command. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, this is Jesus, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come. See this? Against you. What words? Jesus talks to a church with a glowing reputation. Verse 1. It is, it is full of applause, but it's about to die. And they don't see past what everyone else is telling them about their church and how great it is. They can't get past that. And here's Jesus in his great grace telling this church it is about to die, verse 2, before it dies. One more example. Last one. And we're done. See, this is the last page of my notes. Church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. Look at this. Can you imagine a church being that stupid? Remember what I said? Sins that get in, inward sins in the nature and in the mind affect the way you can look at sin. Not realizing. These people aren't trying to be this way. They, 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 can't, they, can't, they, don't, they can't see it. Not realizing. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Look at this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Then these words, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And so, so how do we wrap up? Here's our Hebrews text. Calling, warning Christian people about the need to strive after Christ's gracious provision and life. And our text calls us to consider that generation who failed to enter God's promised land rest because of the opposition that was still there to be driven out. And our writer holds that generation up and he makes them our example of God's displeasure with those who don't strive, who don't press in against opposition. who don't strive deeper and deeper into promise, provision, and blessing. And so, here we sit, May 28th, 
2017, it's a long time removed. But Jesus is still alive and he's still exactly the same. And we have his sure word to the church. And so think and pray about the example of that rebellious generation who died in the wilderness. Because, here's what I think. It's much better to have a bad example like that than to become a bad example like that. Agreed? What have you what have you quit what have you quit pushing back in terms of opposition in your Christian walk? Where where the pressure of the culture and circumstances and need and stress and fatigue and everything else that comes and says you need to just you need to just ease up on this whole Jesus thing. At what point in your life is there just some slice where where uh, you're confusing resting in grace with relaxing in grace. Because whether you're here and you're 18 or whether you're here and you're 85, you will never get to a place in your Christian walk where there's not opposition. You will never get there. The easier opposition is the external stuff. Persecution, I know it makes us uncomfortable, I get it. The harder kind of opposition are sins that are allowed to just quietly germinate in the heart. I don't mean you commit adultery or I, I mean I mean affections that aren't yielded to Christ, idols in the heart. Things where Jesus comes and puts his stamp on them and says, mine. And you say, no, 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 mine. 